Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I have to tell you, it's uh, cloudy out today in Burbank, which is funny because it's cloudy like once a month. And I noticed every Saturday I wake up, and uh, we wake up early, and I watch the news. And the news, every Saturday I watch Channel 5, and it's, uh, I forget her name, but she's Liberty, Liberty Chang. And she sits there every day, and for some reason, the news, every 10 minutes does the weather when it's exact same weather every day, every month. And it irritates me because I'm sitting there. I want to see some news. And I'm sitting there and all of a sudden they go, well, here's the weather. And it's just awful. But today we have clouds. And so I guess I'll hear about that all night when I get home. Anyway, we have a fellow Burbankian. Well, originally via North Carolina. That's right. Uh, Nick, seriously, how you doing, Nick? Pretty good. Pretty good. I'm, I'm, I'm amazed I got here on this cloudy day. I hope I, they close the schools. I know. <laughs> now, uh, now you're from North Carolina. Yes. Okay. And now when you grew up and you were a kid, I know you were an English major, I believe in college, mm -hmm. but at what point were you, as a little kid, were you creative or were you, cause you're, you're sort of a big guy. I'm sure you played sports. I did. I was a basketball player uh, my whole life cause my mother was and my father was, so it was kind of expected, but uh, yeah, I mean, I was always kind of a show off in a lot of ways, you know, when uh, the, we grew, I grew up in a university town called Cullowhee, Western Carolina university. And whenever the university would do a play that needed a kid, you know, they would come down to the little school and try to find a kid to do the part. And every time they came down, the, you know, my teacher would go, get that Cersei kid. He's been doing Tom Jones impressions during show and tell. He wants to do it. You Were know? you a big Tom Jones fan? I was. I was you know, <laughs> it's funny you say that. I was talking to someone the other night and we were talking about our first albums. Do you remember your first album you ever got as a kid? It'll come to me. Yes. Mine was Tom Jones' Greatest Hits. And I remember I love the song God's Little Green Apples or something like that. Uh-huh. I, I had that one. Uh, yeah. And it had, <laughs> that was his country album. Yeah. It had, you know, uh, Cool Water was on right. that record. Yeah. I had a bunch of Tom Jones records when I was seven or eight. And you were doing impressions. Yeah. I would do, I would do like, uh, I would do the crazy ones. I did, I think I did a 10 minute version of Hey Jude during... <laughs> Show and tell and dancing around like a maniac. So you, so your acting was in your blood as a kid. I mean, yeah. Were your, were your parents creative? No, um, no. I mean, uh, most of my uncles and cousins are are preachers. So I think maybe for a while there, I thought I wanted to preach, but then I realized that what I really liked was them being up on stage and people listening to them. And uh, so yeah, I think I was about my first memory of deciding that I wanted to be an actor was I was about. 10 or 11 or something, and I was watching the Mary Tyler Moore show, and I thought, those people look like they're having fun. I want to do that. Okay. And that was really, after that, I was always looking for a play or something to do. So in high school, did you start getting into it? Did you start getting plays and acting? And Yeah, we didn't have a drama department, so I just made my English teacher let me put on plays. So I ended up in like my junior in high school, I suckered some guy into doing the zoo story with me okay. <laughs> in the gym. I mean, it must have been the most horrible thing ever, but I loved it, you know. Um, now, when you got out of high school, I know you went to a North Carolina School of the Arts for a little bit. Is mm -hmm. that true? And Short time. Yeah. Now, what? why did you leave there? I just didn't fit in there. They, uh, you know, I got there from my little town in the mountains and they told me that I had to change the way I talked. I mean, School of the Arts at that time was a very sort of British style school where they basically just tear you down and then rebuild you. And I just couldn't catch on. You know, they just said, you talk, your, your accent has to be changed. I go, what are you talking about? I sound like Paul Newman. I've been practicing. You right. know? <laughs> and so they wouldn't let you do anything. And I don't know. I just, I just never felt like I fit in there. And the, about the uh, middle of the second semester, the Dean called me in and said, you know, I don't know if we're going to ask you back. And I said, well, you know, I'll do you a favor. I'll just go, I'll transfer. So I went to uh, University of North Carolina. And Chapel. you majored in? In English and, well, I had a double major up until the last year. And then I realized the only two uh, things I had left to get for a drama degree was building sets. And I didn't want to do that. So right. I just took the English degree. Okay, so you're, you're a dual major and so you just got the English. So, so then you get, you get out and you're in North Carolina. And you want to act. And as you said, you were from a small town. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, I'm sure you're not thinking, okay, 
you know, what, where did you think you were going to follow your career to? I know you went to New York eventually, but, but what, what were the steps that made you get up there? Did you sit there and hang out in North Carolina for a while? You know, when I first graduated, I had a band in college and my guitarist and I were like thinking, let's try to make a go of this band. And after about three months of playing in bars and getting drunk, I thought, well, this is really, (laughs) this is not a real career choice here. So I, I had a, a girlfriend at the time that was uh, from New York. And so I moved there with her and sort of, you know, spent seven years in New York kicking around and doing some plays and studying acting, trying to find an agent. You know, I was there for, I did a lot of plays, but I never did a, a film while I was in New York. No, you did a lot of off-Broadway? Mm-hmm. Okay, now. We, and way off. Okay, way off, like <laughs> Hoboken. Way, way off-Broadway. <laughs> now, were you enjoying it, though? Were you loving, were you loving being on stage? Yeah, you know, I always did. I mean, I was always, though, I mean, I did stage work as a vehicle because what I always really wanted to do was film. That was what my first love was, just going to the movies and just sort of, man, I want to do that. I want to be part of that. I want to make movies. I want to be in that world. And so stage was always kind of just the only vehicle I had to learn my craft. But what I really wanted to do was be on film. So you were in New York for a while. Then you moved back to North Carolina, I believe. Yeah, in 89. I got married in 1986. Um my wife Leslie and I lived in New York for three years, and then when she got pregnant, somehow I don't know how that happened, but we moved back to North Carolina to have the child because we just didn't think a four-floor walk-up with a bathroom and a bathtub in the kitchen right. was a good place to have a baby. So, <laughs> so you get back to North Carolina. Well, what what is your course of action? What do you plan to do? Well, you know, my wife had sort of been wanting to get out of the acting biz. She was sick of it, and she had. Got, uh, applied to a graduate school. She wanted to get a master's degree. And I was thinking, I was working in my parents' restaurant at the time. Were and, you cooking? Yeah, well, sort of managing cooking when somebody didn't show up, whatever. And uh, But, I, you know, I was thinking about going back to graduate school myself, maybe going and being an English teacher or something. And, and uh, But in the meantime, I got a little agent in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I was kind of a, since I'd been in New York, I was sort of exotic. <laughs> So they sent me out on a bunch of stuff, and I, I wound up getting little parts in like Days of Thunder and Fry, um, Prince of Tides and some other movies that came through town. And then when Fried Green Tomatoes came to town, I, I auditioned for a little bitty part, and uh, John Evnett out of the blue said, I want to read this guy for Frank. And they handed me this big pile of paper, and it was like an actual part in an actual movie. <laughs> what, what, what was it like for you, though? I mean, from going from stage, going to film, because it's a completely different world. Like those first few, like the first days of Thunder, were you, were you a little nervous? I know it's a small part, but you're sitting there going, wait a second, it's a different world? Or how that? Oh, I was totally nervous. I was completely insane, insanely nervous. And, and it's funny, I was so nervous when I met Tony Scott, because that was the first movie I ever auditioned for, that my knees were shaking. <laughs> And so when I was on set, I'm on set with Tom Cruise and Robert Duvall, and I'm just like, I'm afraid to even move. Which Duvall, I mean, God, that's like like the heaviest of heavyweights. I mean, yeah. that's like, damn. I was afraid to say anything. I just didn't speak until it was my line, and I just sort of over-prepared to the point that was like, I am not going to make a mistake, you know, whatever. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was, it, was t- it was a learning process, obviously. But the funny thing is that years later, I had an audition for Tony Scott again. And this was after I'd done a bunch of movies and been, you know, fairly experienced. And because it was Tony Scott, my knees were shaking again. I that, just had a, an immediate recall of how nervous I was the first time I met him. Well, the fried green tomatoes, I mean, when they sit there and they give you this big chunk of uh, dialogue, which, of course, as, as it goes back to you had been in plays, you know dialogue, but it's just different. I mean, first of all, that must have been amazing for you because you never saw it coming. You, you were thinking, maybe I'll go back and get my uh, master's in English. Mm-hmm. And you basically, you're, the acting was sort of, in on the back burner a little bit when you this part came about how do you react to that when they sit there and go okay i mean when you walk onto the set to audition or or whatever and you think it's gonna be a small part and then they want you to be this big part i mean how does your how do you perceive that i mean i cannot stop the word perceive how do you break that down i mean it must just be a weird feeling must be surreal but then also it must be nerve-wracking yeah, it is. It, uh, but at that time, I think, you know, I was so still kind of so hungry to do it. At that time, it was just like, OK, this is this is like a lot of good stuff. I can really do this, you know, and sort of at that time, I, I think it was more about the process of the work, especially with with that particular thing. When he handed me that uh, that role of Frank, and I, I just remember sitting in the lobby preparing for it and going, oh, this is going to be great. 
oh, I can do this. This is going to be fun. <laughs> you know? So uh, there, there was, there was a, a nervousness, but there was also, I think, having all that experience in New York and doing all that work, I did kind of know what I was doing. And so whenever I was given a chance to actually focus on the work, I usually could, you know. Now, after your audition, how long till you find out till you get to part? Well, with fried green tomatoes, I had like six callbacks. Okay, I so had you... to drive, and I was living in North Carolina. I had to drive to Atlanta. Oh, wow. How far is that? Two and a half hours. So so you go down for the first audition. Yeah. I, they gave me the part. Uh, they gave me the paper. You know, they read me for Frank. I go, that was great. I go home, tell my wife, I read for this big part. I don't know. About a week later, they say they want to see you again. I go, great, a callback. I go back. <laughs> John Avnet's there again. You know, I do it again. He goes, okay, Nick, that was great. Thanks a lot. Three more times. They call me, you know, yeah, they want to see you again. But the fourth time I go down there, John Avnet, you know, I do the part and I go, can I just ask you something? It's, is there something that you're not seeing that you want me to do? I mean, why do you keep calling me back? And John Avnet says, I'm just waiting for you to screw up. <laughs> So fifth time I go down, I go down one more time and then I wait. And then a week later they call me and they say, well, you didn't get the part, but they want to offer you like this day player. It's like a Klansman. He's got a hood on. You have one line. I said, you tell John Avnet that he can stick that Klansman <laughs> up his, you know what? And, you know, and I wept and I was just like, I'm quitting this. I hate this business. And then like the weekend before they started shooting on a Thursday. My agent called and said, they want to see you back down there one more time. <laughs> You're going, oh, my God. Go, I'm not be driving to be a Klansman. That's too far. <laughs> right. He said, no, no, they won't tell me, but they want to see you. And I drive down there, and basically, Jordan Kerner and John Avnet get me in a room and go, Avnet, he's always chewing on something. He's always eating something. Avnet goes, well, Nick, you think you're ready to do a part this big? And <laughs> I said, John. I've been ready for this for 10 years. It was the 10 years of nothing that I wasn't ready for. <laughs> and uh, so they gave me the part. And the next Monday, I started the Monday after that. That was on a Friday. I went home, got my stuff. When I got to the set on Monday, there was a different actor's name on the call sheet oh, God. in my part because, I won't say his name, but that actor had wanted too much money. Okay. So, and so that I got the part because I was local. Hey, that's, that's, that's all good, though. Yeah. So now you get that. Now it's, it's, it's a big movie, and it's great cast. And, you know, I believe Fanny, Fanny Flagg wrote the book, right? Fanny Flagg wrote the book. And um, so all of a sudden, you know, you're in a big movie. There's big names. It's not like, you know, I mean, Days of Thunder were big movies, but you had a small part. So how does your career change after that happens? I mean, once you're in this movie, and it did well. Is there a buzz starts about you like, oh, we got you got to check this guy, this guy, you know, next year. So you, gotta, you, you know, sort of, but not really. I mean, you know, it, the movie came out. I went to the premiere. I was still living in North Carolina. My wife's still getting her degree. I'm still cooking in the kitchen half the time. <laughs> Green tomatoes, you're cooking fried yeah, people, like, Make that guy. <laughs> people were coming in, you know, and the name of my, it was my parents' restaurant. It was named Cersei's Restaurant. Okay. So people would come in and go, is this the Nick Cersei that's in fried green tomatoes? Is he here? Has he ever come in here? And the waitress would go, yeah, he's actually, he's cooking your fried chicken right now. You want him to come out and say hello? You know? So <laughs> it didn't change immediately. Exactly. But what did happen was that at that time, you know, after I started getting some work, my wife and I kind of made a pact that after she finished her, her graduate degree that we would move to L.A. and I'd give it a shot. You know, we'd try for a while. And what that movie did allow me to do was to get an agent in L.A., by just basically calling up a friend and going, hey, do you know anybody? And I called this manager in L.A. who was a friend of a friend, and I said, you know, I am play the bad guy in this movie, Fried Green Tomatoes. My name's Nick Searcy. I don't know if you want to, you know, you want to go take a look at it and see if you want to represent me. And she went and saw the movie, and she called me back. And she said, I'll represent you. And yeah. so basically I was able to go to L.A. with that agent problem kind of solved. You know? So so you moved, your wife got done, then you moved to L.A. Mm -hmm. Now, I always ask people this. Where was the first place you moved when you came out? Had you been to L.A. before? I'd been here just to visit a couple of times. So where's the first place you moved to? Well, I had a friend in North Hollywood. My wife's best friend was in North Hollywood. And both of them said, you should look in Burbank. Okay. So I moved to Burbank. So you've been in Burbank. Okay, so that, this is your first place. That's good because I lived in a little place in Hollywood. Then I lived in Westwood. Now I've lived here and I love it. Yeah. So you come out to L.A. and now it's – Sort of like starting over though, right? Because it's it's you're you're out there, but 
everyone's had that movie part. You know, you're, yeah. you're, there's a million of you. Right. So, so what kind of roles are you getting sent out for? Well, it was, you know, obviously with, with Frank Bennett, you know, being a wife beater, I got sent out for a lot of <laughs> wife beaters. And I got to, I remember saying to my wife, I don't know why I keep getting sent out for these abusive men, these wife beaters. And my wife goes, well, you don't look like you could beat up a man. <laughs> now, now, did people, after that movie, did people come up to you like, uh, like people saw the movie? Did they, did some people believe, I mean, some people believe that that's actually you. I, at the time that we moved back here, right when that movie first came out, my wife's father lived in Berkeley. Okay. And so we would go to Berkeley to visit. I remember going into this bookstore um, and the cashier, this uh, young woman, this cashier was just incredibly rude to me and just sort of mean for no reason. I couldn't figure it out, you know, and, and I had my fried green tomatoes jacket on. And so when I left the store, I was standing out in the street talking to my father-in-law going, I don't know why that woman hated me so much. And she saw my jacket and she came out and said, look, I, I just want to apologize. <laughs> I hated your guts on sight. And then I realized it was because of that movie. I, I remember you from the movie. You know. That's but that's uh, that shows you're, you're doing a good job acting. Right, right. <laughs> you know, people yeah. are hating you. It's, yeah. It's, I mean, that, that, when that was sort of the only thing that I had done of any visibility, people were always saying, I, you know, to, even to my wife, they were, I can't believe you're married to that guy. That guy's awful. That's so funny. It's, I know. I, I always crack up when you see it, and I hear that story so many from people, and it's like, it's TV, it's movies, it's different. Yeah. They're not. They're not that way. No. Usually, the ones who are the real nice guys are the prick in real life. That's, you know right. What I mean? That's right. So now, now your first bigger role for a TV was Thunder Alley. Is that is that true? Was that your first bigger like recurring? Not really. I mean, I was on. Yeah, I had a few. That was not. That was a first recurring role. It wasn't a regular. I, you know, few few episodes of that. Jim Bieber was on that. Okay, yeah, and uh, and uh, Mike Ed Asner and Robbie Benson was involved with that. I believe. Yeah, he directed a few of them. Yeah, okay, yeah. I remember in introducing my daughter to him because he was directing one of the episodes, and my daughter at that time was five, six, and she had seen Beauty and the Beast, and I told her, "This is, this is Robbie Benson. You know, he played the Beast." And he, and Robbie Benson said, "Hello, how are you?" He leaned down and did the Beast <laughs> voice. It scared. Chloe to death, you know. She was like, "I'm never going back to that set." He was on the show. He was the nicest guy. Yeah. I just because you know, I'm 51, so I you know, one on one and all those movies we watch, like we love. Oh, Robbie Benson's so cool. And then mm -hmm. you meet him, and you go, "This guy's really, he's still cool." It's mm -hmm. like, come on. So okay, so your first recurrent, well, your first regular was American Gothic. Was that yeah. your first? Okay. So now you're you're acting. How does it, when you're going from recurring to different roles? I mean, are you getting pilots during the time too, or what's what's going on with your career before you end up on American Gothic? Yeah, I mean, I think I read for a few pilots here and there. I mean, at that time, it was still, this was 1990, what, two or three. And there was, it's not so much that way anymore, but there was that idea of like, you don't want to be a TV actor. You want to be right. a film actor, you know. So they were trying to get me movies and, um, you know, and I had some success. I mean, I had a pretty good first year, but it was all kind of, small parts in movies and miniseries and this and that. And uh, I remember my agent at that time, it was like the first year that I made six figures in my life, you know, ever. I thought, damn, I'm rich now. Right, right. My agent calls me then and goes, why do you think you didn't do better this year? You know, I'm like, I did pretty well. Right. What are you talking about? <laughs> I thought I did great. Um, But yeah, and, and then when American Gothic came up, I mean, I really kind of pushed for that part. I heard about the- uh, What made you want that part? What made you push for it? I just love the uh, the idea of it. it, that sort of southern, the evil beneath the surface in a southern town. I just was attracted to that idea, and I thought it was something that I could do really well. And so my manager really fought and pushed to get me in front of Sean Cassidy. They didn't necessarily want to see me, but I made the, you know, basically she she talked them into letting, to, to reading me for what eventually became Gary Cole's part. I actually read for the lead. Okay. And, uh, it, you know, Sean didn't like me for the lead, but he, he, he put me in as Ben, who was supposed to, I think it originally was going to die in the pilot. But then, you know, they liked the character of Ben so much that they kept me on and made me a regular. So you're working on that and you're acting. Now, at what point did you decide, you know, you directed and produced and started a movie called Paradise Falls, which back then, it's when 
indie was indie. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it wasn't now. It's like everyone goes, oh, I did this independent movie. <laughs> yeah, with with a, a budget for, you know, a budget for uh, $80,000. Yeah, but you shot it on digital. You know what I mean? People right. don't understand. Like, if, I mean, I remember guys, you know, when I was doing comedy in Philly back in like the late 80s, guys will come in going to try and get their student film for Temple, University of Temple. And it's like, how much you need? Oh, uh, Oh God, I got to raise $12,000. How long is the movie going to be? Six minutes. What? We're like, what the hell? But so, but back when that, so what made you decide? Because you're getting these parts. Was it, and you said you you'd had American Gothic, some other things, roles you were getting, and you were doing well. Mm-hmm. First of all, what made you decide to produce it? How did you decide on the film? And did you feel that you could direct it? Had you directed it before? You know, you'd, uh, I'd made little Super 8 films in college. You know, I, I did, I had always sort of directed, I directed plays. I'd always made movies and stuff, little ones. And I had a friend at that time, still a friend. I don't mean I don't have him anymore. Right. <laughs> His name is Sean, Sean Bridgers, who was from my hometown. He's about 10 years younger than me. And he had written this script and he came on and did an episode of, of uh, American Gothic. And we started talking about this script that he wrote. And we just sort of got excited about the idea. Let's just raise the money and shoot this ourselves, you know. He had written a part for himself and a part for me, and he said, "I'll star in it. You can direct." And and we did it. We went out and raised three hundred grand. Now, how do you? Okay, and that's before you know. Now there's crowdfunding. This funding. There's like eighty-seven <laughs> different sites. How does one go about? And and like, what is the? I always wonder what is the pitch when you're raising money for a movie? Like because. People, I mean, I don't know if people don't know this, but it's not like they're going to get their money back. I mean, right. I mean, how do you pitch to, what, what was your pitch to these different people? Well, you know, basically we would go to, we basically targeted fairly well-to-do members of our community, the people that we knew or knew of, and pitched them idea about making a movie that was set in the mountains of North Carolina, which we all love and, you know, was going to be beautiful. And we would go in and pitch them the story. Say this is what's going to happen, and then this happens, and then he shoots that guy, and we just sort of act out the whole thing for him, and you know, basically always with the disclaimer, it's very likely that whatever you contribute to this, you won't get your money back. But if we hit a home run, and it, you know, there's a potential to make some money, so you shouldn't give us money that you're not willing to lose. You know? And they probably also said that like this because you probably give them an executive producer credit, they give them some credit because yeah. everyone yeah. sits there and goes, hey, hey, look, look. Yeah, look. I mean, you know. One, you know, one guy we put in the movie. Right. <laughs> we just sort of sold it any way we could. And, you know, we were kind of shocked at how quickly we were able to raise the money. And at that time, you know, uh, SAG had this kind of low budget agreement that if you kept your movie under 300 grand, that uh, you, you got a different contract. It was like a what, you know, what's called the modified low budget agreement now is it's gone up to 500,000 or whatever. But. Back then it was three hundred thousand, so we just decided we'd make the movie for that. So, you sit there and now you're directing this, and now it's more than a little digital movie. You have a budget, you have people invested. Were you nervous at directing it, or did you say, you know what, I got this because you've you've been in a lot of stuff? I was insanely confident. I don't, <laughs> probably wrong, but at that time, you know, I was. 32 years old and I thought this is going to be the greatest movie ever made and you know I was really confident about it and 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 in a lot of ways you know the actors that we cast were all kind of people that we'd worked with in North Carolina friends of ours you know and they were all everybody was glad to be there and I had a great DP uh Mark Peterson was his name and uh you know it it was just I felt really great about it, it and it was so much fun it was just the most engrossing, engaging time of my life was directing that movie. So you get done directing it, and you have all this footage, and now you have to actually make them. I mean, I mean yeah. that's the thing. It's like you shoot all this stuff, and and I'm sure you cut stuff out. And now, did you know, like when you were shooting a scene, would you sit there and go, you know what, I don't think this is going to make the cut? I mean, how did you fit? How in your mind did you figure out how it was all going to end up? When we were shooting it, I I didn't think that way. Uh, I mean, all and for what it for good or for bad. All I thought about was let's make this scene as good as we can. We'll decide whether it goes in later, you know, that kind of thing. So we were just, I was just so consumed in, you know, shooting the movie and getting the shots I wanted and the style I wanted that I didn't really think about how it would be edited so much. Um, and the first assembly was two and a half hours long. <laughs> right. So, and we ended up with a movie that was 99 minutes long. So yeah, we cut, we cut a lot of stuff. 
Now you get, finally get it done. It must be a great feeling. I mean, when it's all wrapped and it's 99 minutes. And now it, it, it had some uh, festival success, right? We won six film festivals, including the Hollywood Film Festival in 1998, and had a lot of talks with people who were, you know, talking to us about buying the film, marketing the film, and it just never sold. Um, at that time, I think in 96, when we made the movie, it was the record for the most independent films ever made okay. in America. And and also, our movie was more of a, a classical style, kind of a John Ford Western. I sort of patterned it after The Searchers, and it was just kind of not the style of the day. I mean, that was the time of Clerks and, right. and a lot of really kind of grainy 16 millimeter kind of hip films that looked like independent films, and ours didn't. Ours looked like a really expensive Hollywood movie, except there was nobody in it you'd ever seen before. <laughs> so it just, you know, and I had people tell me, you know, if you just had one star in this movie, I could sell it. It's a great movie, but, you know, since you don't have anybody to hang the marketing on, I can't do anything with it. So you get that done. That's the movie's done. So now where do you go back in your career? Do you sit there and go, okay, I'm, I have to hit the... The, the trenches again because it's like anything if the movie was a you know sold right. and was a hit then it's like all of a sudden hey you know what i'm gonna direct i can be in right. these movies this is what i'm gonna do where do you go from there do you sit there and say you know what I, i'm gonna concentrate on my acting again well after the experience of raising all that money shooting editing and then trying to sell it and failing right <laughs> all i could think of for like the last eight months of that whole process was like I was insane. I had this great little job where I laid in the trailer. I had a few lines here and there. <laughs> I want that job back. I want that job back. And so, uh, yeah, basically, I think what happened was that we were living in, in North Carolina at the time, and I was still going out for pilots and stuff, and I ended up getting a, a pilot in 1998 called Seven Days, which was for UPN Science Fiction Show, and that relocated us back to LA from North Carolina. Um, and that, I did that for three years. That kind of got me back in the swing of things. Um, and some movies came up during that time too, that I did in the off season. Did you miss though, the hustle and bustle of the producing, directing? I mean, was it, I mean, or were you just like, no, I'm just fine in the trailer. Oh, I'm going to be good in the trailer. At that time, I mean, uh, at that time, my acting career was going pretty well. You know, I was busy. I did cast away with with Tom Hanks and, and I think one hour photo and some other things. And so I didn't really think about it too much. I really didn't. Now, were you enjoying the TV, doing the TV or the movies at the time? I mean, or did you think it was just acting so you're happy? You know, I, I always enjoyed the movies. I mean, it was great working with people like Tom Hanks and Jodie Foster and all that Liam Neeson, you know, all the people that I got to work with, but it was always, you know, for me, just my personal situation with my family and my daughter, TV was a better situation for me. You know, it was always better to have that steady gig, you know, rather than, you know, than it would, than it was to sort of go, okay, I got a movie, but I'll be gone for about six weeks. And then when I come back, I don't know what I'm going to do. So you know, uh, I always, and I enjoyed both equally. So, well, before seven, uh, before seven days, you did from, uh, from here, earth to the moon. Yes. Now you're playing someone real. Yeah. Now, what's that like? Because you're sitting there all of a sudden because it's like it's like anything. You want to play them like them, but you don't want to imitate them, I'm sure. You don't want to sit there and go, okay, well, I'm going to be exactly like this person. Mm -hmm. And did you meet the person you played? Well, Deke, uh, Deke Slayton had passed away okay. before we did it. Uh, but a lot of the astronauts that you know whose stories were told in the film, they actually visited. And a lot of the guys who uh, – actors who – played them, got to meet them. And I got to talk to them and I, you know, I've watched film and I actually met Deke Slayton's widow and spoke to her over the phone. And, you know, you do it in a situation like that, or at least what I do is I do as much research about the guy as I can get as much of a feel for him as I can, and then try to forget it and just act the part, you okay. know, and just hope that stuff works on you in a, in a, organic way so that you're not putting on some impression or something i want to get back to your career again but i want to i want to i want to talk about you on twitter because uh, oh, no. no 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 did my mom call you and tell you no. to tell me to stop doing no. that on twitter? no I, I i when i was i was because i do research for my guests and when after we had talked about it in the show i went on and there was an article about you about uh I, it was some headline i think i don't know if you posted on your twitter but it had a bunch of your tweets yeah and one of my things about twitter is this and, and i and i have a lot of guests who tweet and 
I really get irritated when people are mean to someone that they don't know. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know you. I would never sit there. You know, I mean, I'll make a joke, joking around about Kirstie Alley when she was heavy. You know, but it's right. not like, but it's a lot of people will sit there and, and you're, you have your political views mm-hmm. and you tweet them and I, and that's fine. But I mean, people can be jerks. And I think because you have a celebrity, they think that you don't care. Like they can just call you a dick and it's nothing big. Like, you know, oh yeah. Like one girl, Jen Kirkman, very funny comic. Someone said she, she's from Boston and she said about the whole Brady thing. She's, she tweeted, well, good. Because now all those guys who picked on us theater kids are getting screwed. <laughs> and some guy wrote, why don't you shut up? You know, nothing about sports. You don't even know anything about comedy. And it's like, yeah. You know, it's like, so, so how did you, cause you have some, I always, you always, you, and I saw some of the tweets I read, you always, about your heated pool right. and your award. Now, yeah. how, when did this, when did people start getting aggressive towards you in tweeting? Was it when you started doing Justified or you were, or I mean, when did, I mean, cause like Jim Beaver, who has, was on the show, has tons of, you know, and sometimes people will just write stuff like, and you sit there and, and I think what? possesses someone mm-hmm. like if my mom saw, I don't you know my mom seen me curse when I did comedy right. you know but if I wrote something like that my mom would sit there and go Stephen why would you be mean to that person when did your when did you start responding to Twitter like when you started to when, when did you start tweeting how long ago oh I don't know I think I started four or five years ago it seems like I'm not sure but it was a sort of established account and I never knew how it worked and I didn't pay attention to it for years and then, um, you know, um, I think I got sort of interested in Twitter because of Andrew Breitbart before he died. I started reading some of his tweets and some of the stuff he was doing I thought was funny. And and uh, I just started doing it as a – it's almost like an improv class for me. It's just sort of fun. And, and I started realizing, okay, people are going to attack me because I happen to be a conservative or, or not – necessarily a democrat in certain areas and and sometimes people attack me for that so i just started doing kind of what andrew breitbart did which is making fun of them or responding to them in a sort of you know like way you know like if they attack me i call them fat or something which is stupid because i don't know if they're fat or not exactly you know and then they get really mad you know and then but the, and then you know one of the things that really infuriates people that attack me is when I start bragging about how successful I am and what a big star I am. <laughs> you know? See, and then they say, I, "You're not a big star. I never heard of you. You, you're not even on Justified that much." And you're probably like, well, "Why are you follow me then?" <laughs> I go, "Well, how did you find me?" Yeah. And and you know if they say I never heard of you, I go, "Well, I can't help how ignorant you are." <laughs> No, no. I mean, it must, and you do it in a fun slant, but it's funny because you do, you can enrage people. Anyone can. Like I, my girlfriend is a sexual assault victim and she speaks out about that. And some guy wrote something because they, they, they did something about her. She supported some page or whatever. And this guy wrote like something's just awful. And so he didn't know. So I I went after him. I said, Oh, I said, you know, do you say anything? Do you live in your mom's basement? Is that (laughs) what you And then, and the funny thing is they always, he goes, you're nothing but a bootlicker. Go back to hot. And I'm thinking, I said, I said, I'm sorry. I know you live in Canada, but do you even, do you wear shoes? And, and it's so funny because, and when we're having fun, it's so funny how people get, I mean, people get irate with you. Yeah, I know. And that's when I really, that's when I've got them, you know, that, that's when it's more fun. Now, do you block them or do you let it keep going? You know, I do it for a while. I mean, I, I sort of, I'll play with them and I'm kind of like, it's kind of like a cat with a, a turn, a catnip mouse you know right bat it around for a while and then you get sick it doesn't have any flavor anymore you kick that one away and you wait for another chew toy you know now your politics you're 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 a conservative yeah and but people it's so funny because you have an adopted african-american son Mm -hmm. and so now how do the conservatives react to that or how do the liberals because it's and i always say i'm 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 a liberal conservative i'm down the middle right and i always say the hardcore right and the hardcore left are both the same they're Mm -hmm. both they're both have their agendas. Right. How, like, let's say you have a, a liberal attacking you. How do they react when you sit there and they find out you have, you adopted an African-American son? They probably sit there and go, wait, that doesn't make sense. He's supposed to be, it's like, okay, I saw a homeless guy. This is no lie. I saw a homeless guy on the ramp uh, on Burbank Boulevard. He had a sign 
that said, Obama gave me this job. And I was thinking, <laughs> okay, first of all, you just alienated every person who would give you money and the hardcore conservative is not going to give you money. I'm like, you're the stupidest homeless person I've ever seen in my life. How do people react when they find out about you? Do they sit there and they probably go, oh, well, then he's okay. But then you say, yeah, well, I'm in my heated pool with my Peabody. No, you know, I, I very, I don't think I've ever really been attacked by a conservative about I mean, my son on Twitter, at least, you know, that I know of, but I get attacked by liberals about it all the time. And mostly what they say, you know, I'll put up a picture of my son or something and they'll say, just because you have an African-American son, doesn't mean you can't be a racist. That doesn't inoculate you from being a racist. And I'm like, Okay, how would that work? Yeah, it's, it's it like the old, it's does. Like, it's the old like Jews for Jesus. It's, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, yeah. it kind of does, and I'm sorry, but it kind of does prove that I'm not. You know, it's, so. But yeah, it, it's. I think, and this is kind of a controversial view on my part, but I think a lot of at least the more hardcore leftists really have a problem with transracial adoption. I've experienced that in going through the foster care system and adopting my son, there's a lot of people out there who don't think it's right for people of one race to raise a child of another race. They think it, they call it cultural genocide and they have all these names for it. And I think a lot of the, or the uh, impetus for that is that a lot of the hardcore left is very invested in dividing us by whatever way they can, by race or by gender or pitting one group of Americans against another and saying, we're here to protect you from those evil guys over there. And I think the sort of idea that, you know, we've adopted our son and we're raising him the best way we can, not denying him his heritage, but not denying him our heritage either, that uh, they find they're very threatened by that. And they just general, you know, in a general way, they don't like it. It's yeah, it's crazy. But I, when I read that article, I was just dying. Your tweets. I mean, I, I always love that because it's. I love the fact that, as I said, people and and you're right. You're hitting a subject that people are going to talk about. And the thing is, you keep your cool, and and people probably just think of you like they don't know that you're joking. You know, it's like it's like when you from Fried Green Tomatoes, they thought you were a real abuser. They probably think you're like the most pompous jerk. And it's so funny because I always laugh at that. And I always wonder what happened where, you know, I when I was a little kid, if I had seen Carol O'Connor out somewhere, you know, I mean, yeah. he was back east somewhere, I would never have thought that he was actually Archie Bunker. Right. You know what I mean? And now it's like everyone, it's so, everyone sometimes takes stuff so literal. It's insane. You know, I think of my Twitter persona as a wrestling heel character. I th it's kind of my Andy Bruce Kaufman moment, okay. you know. And so I'm just sort of like the more people that I convince that I'm actually a pompous asshole, the more fun it is. Now, how many followers do you have? I think it's like 60, close to 65,000. Like and now do do people block you or do you, do, do you ever have to block anybody? Once in a while, I mean, you know, when people are just so foul mouthed and vulgar that it's not even fun. Right. I mean, right. you know, when they just sort of start making these kind of like sexual remarks, you just kind ah, you know, what the hell? Good luck in seventh grade. Buddy. Exactly. Now, now, okay, so you, we, you have a sense of humor when you do this. And a lot of your roles were drama through your acting career, but then you ended up being on Rodney, mm -hmm. which is a sitcom. Yeah. So now was that your, I mean, you were regular in that, but was that, and now did you direct his video or something like that? Did, I directed a video. Yeah. He okay. made a video afterwards that I directed. Now, was that your first pretty much stab at comedy or were you not getting, cause you, you know, you, I mean, Boston legal was a, is a light show, but I, I mean, wasn't funny on that. Um, before Rodney, there was head of state. I did a movie with Chris Rock. Okay. Head I remember that. State. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, was that, that your first stab at comedy pretty much? Well, I had been telling the agents, you know, I go, I want to do some comedy. I'm, you know, I'm funny. And they, they, nah, they, everybody thinks of you as dramatic, you know? And so, uh, getting in head of state was a big step. That was the first sort of really public kind of comedy thing that I did. And you're working with a comedian who's amazing. So yeah. I mean, that's pretty, that's you're you're going to learn your ropes that way because yeah. you know, he's, he's a guy who left acting to do comedy then came back. So, yeah. so you did not, did you enjoy doing that? Did you enjoy the comedy when you finally got to do it? Oh, it was where so you're sitting there going, this is great. I, I can just have fun. Oh, it was so much fun. Not only with Chris, I got to work with Chris and Bernie Mac, you know, which, Bernie Mac was the biggest star I think I've ever been around in terms of how people reacted to him. Really? Why is that? <clears throat> when he would walk down the street in Baltimore, I mean, it would just stop traffic. 
people would just see him and go, "Oh my God, it's Bernie Mac!" And they just crowds, and he would, and he would just stop and talk to them all for about fifteen minutes. He just, yeah, so cool. Yeah, he was great. Um, but yeah, Chris, you know, Chris was great. We uh, we got to make up a few bits that weren't in the script. Chris and I did, and uh, you know, it was great fun working with him. And then uh, when Rodney came along. That was real. I think that's my favorite job that I ever had. Well, because it's, I'm sure, as like anything, you know, I've had sitcom writers on and I've had drama writers on. Like our last writer wrote for Evan Loves Raymond and writes for the Goldbergs. And then he wrote for a serious show. And he says, when you're writing for a sitcom at the end of the writer's room, you have to say, okay, this has to be funny. When you're writing for a drama, it doesn't. So I think when you go in as an actor on a, on a sitcom, you know, it's, you're not playing some guy who's strangling someone. You're playing just, it's, I'm sure it's a much lighter feeling now was rodney filmed in front of a live audience yeah okay so now how was that for you because i mean now it's not like when you did stage but you know doing comedy and doing the timing and if you think a joke's gonna work and it doesn't i mean was that intimidating for you first it was so much fun it really was it was because you know like i did a lot of stage in new york and and you know did a lot of comedy in new york and and working with rodney was great he was always so loose with the crowd and you know, the the great thing about doing a sitcom is that you can just intentionally screw it up a couple of times and go off book and, you know, have some fun with the crowd, and then finally get it right. You know, and it, it really it's just sitcom is the best job an actor can have, I think, at least for me. And it, it, it was really a lot of fun. And I I told when the when Justified ended, my agent said, what do you want? I said, I want another sitcom that shoots over there at Radford, you know, right. <laughs> Like I can ride my bicycle over there. Now, now with Rodney, you went, you were there from the beginning, mm-hmm. and it lasted four seasons. Two, two. Okay. Yeah. What was it like? Well, first of all, after that first season, you're having fun. You're doing a sitcom, so you joined it. Were you really hoping, hoping, hoping it would get picked up again? Yeah, yeah. I mean, after it got picked up the first year, we were ecstatic. You know, it was great. Um, not only that, it was great to have a a job like that, but uh, just, it was so much fun. I mean, I love the whole cast. Rodney was great. Jennifer Aspen, Amy Peets, they're all friends of mine to this day. And Amy, yeah, she was on my show. She's, she's nice. Yeah. I love Amy. I remember from Caroline in the city. She was, <laughs> she was great. Yeah. So after Rodney leaves yeah. and I end up on uh, easy money. Yeah. Now that's a sitcom. It was, it was more of an hour long dramedy. Lori, Lori Metcalf. Yeah. It wasn't really a sitcom. Okay. It was, it was filmed in New Mexico and it was shot like a drama. So what's that like having to go down to New Mexico? Is it, I mean, I mean, I mean. Well, there are worse places. It wasn't bad, really. I, I didn't mind Albuquerque. But were you getting used to, you're used to California because Rodney shot out here and you're, are you getting used to, all of a sudden they sit there. Like, how do you do that? Do you, does your wife go with you or, or do you, I mean. Well, you know, we felt it out because you never know with these things how long they're going to last. And Easy Money only ended up lasting eight episodes. So we knew that we were going to do at least 10. So I told my wife, you know, let's just see. I'll just commute for the first few episodes and let's see what happens. If it, if it ends up going for a long time, then we can move. But, you know, so I just it just ended and I hadn't gotten an apartment. A lot of the guys, you know especially some of the younger cast who were more involved in the storylines than I was, you know, they had rented apartments out there and stuff. And it just sort of was a shock and terrible when it ended for them. But I just went like, okay, I'll just check out of the hotel. See you later. (laughs) (laughs) So you're working around, you're working on it. You did a few episodes. You did some episodes of Hot in Cleveland. You did this stuff. How did Justify come up? I mean, how did, was that something that, did they want you or did what did did you have to did you or did you see that and go I want to be on this because you said you know your first movie sort of had like you know the searchers type thing and justified is sort of like a western mm-hmm. that's shot in Santa Clarita which must have been great because it's a nice little thing. <coughs> but how did that role come up and did, was it something that you were was it something you pursued or they pursued you or did, you, did just an audition come up you know Graham Yost who was the showrunner on that the head writer he was on From the Earth to the Moon, and he and I became friends back in 1996 when he was directed that. and We had a few laughs together. And for 15 years, I had been writing him emails going, I thought we were friends. You're doing all this great stuff, and you never hire me. I thought you liked me. I, you know, Now I'm hurt. And so Graham says that when he first read Justified, he read the short story. And he saw the character of Art Mullen. He said, well, I can finally get Nick Searcy off my back if I just give him this part. <laughs> so he really, he actually did have me in mind from the beginning. 
I had to go through the process, you know, and convince everybody else, of course, but Graham was thinking of me from the beginning. Now, when you got on that set, after coming from sitcoms, was it a good feel just because it's, it, it's a, I mean, it's a guy show. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's, I mean, you could say people say there's different kinds of shows, but that's, it's sort of got that guy vibe. I, you know, were, were you excited when you got there? Cause you've worked with them before. Were you excited to get into the role and were you sitting there and it's, you know, I mean, what, how does that feel when you're excited? I mean, I know like, I know you were in an episode of NCIS and everyone says when you go on that set, it's just the best thing ever because yeah. Mark Harmon's great and, and all yeah. that stuff and you, and you leave that set and it's fun. So when you're going through this, like your first day on set, are you excited going, man, this is great. Cause I worked with this guy before or how did you feel? Yeah, I mean, I knew some of the people. I knew Joelle from before. Joelle and I had done a crazy horror movie about uh, five years before that. So I knew her and I knew Walton from Mutual Friends and, you know, and I knew Graham. Uh, and I, you know, Timothy Oliphant, I hadn't met him, but he, we had a lot of mutual friends. He, Sean Bridgers, my friend, was on Deadwood. So it did have a feeling of like even even the people that I didn't know, I knew people who knew them, you know. And they, they, same thing. They knew people who knew me. So we, there was an instant camaraderie amongst most of us. And it was exciting in the sense of, I mean, with that show from the beginning, I just had this feeling, this is going to go the distance. I just felt it. It was just too good a combination. Elmore Leonard, Graham Yost, Tim Oliphant, who's the best leading man I've ever worked with in he any was, medium. He was great in, uh, in the, uh, the girl next door. I don't know if you ever saw that movie. Yeah, yeah. He was great in that. He yeah. just played that like that scumbag. Like they said, he's he's such a good actor. He is, and he's he's a good guy too. I mean, and he respects the process and he enjoys it. So when you're working on something with him, it's very easy and it's very organic. And he's really he's it's not about him. It's about let's make the scene as funny or as good as we can make it and. I mean, it was always a joy. Every time, uh, every time Tim and I got to do a scene together, it was it was a pleasure. Now, in that in that show, because it does have once again, there's certain shows that have this very passionate following. Like you go, you can say Sons of Anarchy is like that. You know, justifies like that. Yeah. You know, if you go Ray Donovan, I mean, there's certain shows that people. Yeah. You know, even like even when, before the Sopranos got huge, the Sopranos had that kind of following where they know the fans know everything. It's sort of like almost like a sci-fi thing where fans know now. Did you start noticing people just con- trying to get in contact with you? Because before, when you're like, it's, it's fried green tomatoes and stuff like that, and earlier stuff, social media wasn't so big. Mm-hmm. So now all of a sudden, social media is big, and you're someone outspoken. We talked about on social media. Did you find a lot of, but a lot of people would reach out to you and say, "Man, we really love the show," or did people start following up more on your past work too? Uh, both, yeah. People, people really loved Art Mullen. They loved that character. Uh, because mostly because of the humor, I think. And so, yeah, people people would write me and, you know, on Twitter and go, whenever you tweet, I hear you speak. I hear, I hear it in Art Mullen's voice and all this. And, you know, the other side of it, too, people that hated me would write me and go, you suck on that show. That show's terrible. You, you're barely in it at all. <laughs> so, so, yeah, it, it, I mean, the thing about the social media thing is it sort of takes down all those barriers that used to be there of like, Oh, it's some guy on television. I'll never have anything to do with him. Now they can just send you a tweet. And if you're crazy like I am, you just I just start writing them back and suddenly they know me. Right. Now you're on all the seasons of Justified. Yeah. Now, what is it like when you're on well, first of all, for your first season, especially I mean, you know, you've been in the business a long time. It used to be a show comes on, like let's say Cheers. And Cheers has a crappy first season. But then summer reruns, me and my guest talked about this last week, who wrote for Cheers, he said summer people got to see it. Nowadays, you can be on a show, and it can be look like a great show, and it can get three weeks of bad ratings, and it's gone. So now Justify, because it was a different show, Justify, it wasn't like, it's not the typical show that comes out, especially when it came out. When you started getting involved with that, did you th- know the first season? Did you think, okay, I mean, you said you felt this was a good thing, but did you honestly think like America's going to buy this enough to let us get keep getting picked up? I I really did. I, I don't remember ever having a doubt about, and I don't know why. I mean, I, I'm sure that intellectually, you know, I thought, well, it may not, you know, we may not get picked up, so we better not buy that car or something. Right. But it's just in my heart, I, I never really thought that it was going to end. You know, I, I really didn't. I'm still shocked that it did. <laughs> well, how is it for you? Because like in a show like that, a lot of people get killed. Mm-hmm. It's like, no. So now do you ever sit there and think, okay, you come back, you go to work one day and you sit there and go, 
uh-oh, they, they've got to see me. I guess I'm getting the news. I mean, did that ever go through your mind? Because oh, sure. a lot of people die. And how, why do you think that you lived? Well, because Graham didn't want to listen to me gripe about it. <laughs> I think probably it's like he called me in season, I think in season five, my character got shot. And he made, you know, he made sure to call me before that script came out and go, look, you're not going to die. Okay. <laughs> We're shooting you, but you're going to live. You know. Now, did you get shot on screen? Yeah. Now, have you been shot before on screen? Yeah, a couple of times. I, I don't think I've been shot and survived it. You know, okay. I, I've been killed. But... What's that like when you when you get killed? I mean, it must be a weird feeling because I always sit there because you watch people and we've all done this growing up. Like you act like you're dead, you know, when your parents, you know, but then I always sit there, I go, I'm always waiting for the person to breathe. Yeah. I'm sorry, because you, you, I don't care how good you can hold your breath. Something's going to twitch. But then, I mean, how many takes does it take to act dead? Yeah, you know. It is hard sometimes if your if your body's lingering in the shot. There was a there was an episode of Chicago Hope where I think Christine Lottie beat me to death or something, <laughs> and then I had to lay there on the floor while she's crying hysterically and her friends are comforting her or something, and so I had to like really try not to breathe, right. you know. And stuff. I mean that that's kind of hard, you know. But the worst time, the worst thing I ever death that I ever had on screen was in in the heat of the night that old show and I played like a sexual harasser or something and uh the, my secretary shot me <laughs> you know? so, but I remember they had this big squib on my chest it was it, she shot me in the chest and so I had this big like thing this right. blood pack that's supposed to blow up on my chest and you can still see it in the show you can see me twitching like right before the thing's going to go <laughs> off because i know that it's going to go off right. and it's like so. now when you found out justify was finished how does that make you feel do you sit there are you, are you sad or you say okay the, the show ran its course or how does that make you feel you know with justified i was you know I, I was sad that it was going to end mostly because of not seeing those people, you know, but mostly because of the people that I would miss seeing every day. But I really wasn't sad for it to end. I felt like we did it. We Sorry. I felt like we did it to, to the end and that we made a great show that people liked. And I was ready to move on. I was ready to do something else, actually. So. Well, I know you were also an episode of Hawaii Five-0. Mm -hmm. And uh, now I heard that's a great little gig because you get to go to Hawaii. Yeah. It was, it was fun. I mean, sit there, it's like, and I heard it's like you're there for like two weeks or something. Yeah, or? yeah, no, it was great. I played golf a few times with Chai McBride, and you know, I just had a big time. It's like call call my wife. Go, it's so miserable yeah. here. <laughs> I mean, it's so tedious. I'm gonna have to go play golf again because I'm so bored. So now, now, what's coming up for you? We have about ten minutes left. I know I'm looking at your IMDb, and I know that you have the new partner. There's something. Yeah, like that's that's uh, that was a web series that's kind of done. That's not going to happen. Um, there's a couple of things that are coming out. I think there's a movie called Greater, which is a football movie that mm -hmm. I did. Well, what's that about? Who do you, what do you play in that? Um, well, it's hard to say what I play in that. I, I play this farmer character who's kind of a mysterious, a person okay. of mysterious origin. Origin, let's say. But it's about a it's a true story about a football player who died in uh, I think the late '90s at the University of Arkansas. Um. And I play this character who comes and sort of, I'm sort of a Satan figure, you know. Um, then you have some called the, the, uh, the I can't even pronounce it, yeah, Apodomatics? Yeah, that's been going on for a few years now, and I don't know when that's going to shoot. See, IMDb is so weird, because you, yeah, you follow up, and then, then stuff, like, they don't find out, they don't put it up. I mean, now, do you go out and audition a lot, do you, or do you, do you like to take some time off, or I mean... Well, what I'm doing right now is I'm directing again. Well, okay, the, well, I was say, the Rodney the video you directed, yeah. what, how did that come about? He just asked me if I wanted to do it. He knew I'd do it. I, I'd shown him my movie. Okay. So, so that uh, it was something he asked me to do, and it only took about three days, and it was great fun, and um, I had a ball. But this, uh, I'm directing a movie. Probably shoot it in August. We're in pre-production now about um, Kermit Gosnell, who was a murderer convicted in Philadelphia in 2013. Really? Okay, because I'm from the year. I have to look it up now. Yeah. It's just because I grew up right across the bridge. Um. <clears throat> Now, do you like it? I mean, is it something, do you want to take some time off from acting and direct more? Because you said, you know, after you got done that whole process of when you direct and produce and do all that, it's a lot different if you're just directing. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm sure if it's like they say, okay, you know, you're going to direct. I mean, it's, right. it's now. Much better to just direct. Is that something that you want to concentrate more on now? Or, I mean, do you want to take a little time off from acting or you want to do both or? You know, I'm going to, uh, it's, directing is something that uh, I would like to do more of. There's some projects that I'm 
sort of developing um, that I don't want to talk much about right now. But I, I don't want to. I'm not taking time off of acting. I'm doing some directing now. But there is a a situation with acting as you get older, like I am, that uh, sometimes the parts get a little less interesting because they don't need to see old guys do a lot of stuff. You know, it's like <laughs> they write all the good parts for the young kids. So, you know, there's an aspect of it where. You know, whether I like it or not, I realize that uh, I'm going to eventually kind of age out of it. So, you know, I'm going to take what comes my way. I mean, I'm not I'm not uh, I'm not turning my nose up at anything right now. What did you get the Peabody for? Justified. Okay, no, because I because I saw I was looking. It says Peabody winner. Now they so did did you just get it or did the whole show get it or how's that work? No, the whole show got it. And you know what happened with it was I I read about this in the paper. Hey, Justified won a Peabody. Great. I didn't think anything about it. About two years later, my agent uh, came to a a staged reading of a play that I was doing. He said, Oh, I got something for you. I forgot to give it to you. It came a couple of years ago. And he hands me this little package, and then and it had a little Peabody award, and it had my name on it. It's like. All the actors got a little Peabody Award with their name inscribed on it and everything. So I was like, this is awesome. I can use this. So I like, I've been having fun with it ever since. You know, I, I did a wrestling thing about two, uh, last summer where I walked Matt Hardy to the ring during a pay-per-view and I was kind of the heel manager Okay. and I used my Peabody <laughs> Award. I'm walking around in the crowd going, you will, you rednecks will never have one of these. This is for excellence in television, something you will never understand. And they were you, were you yourself when you were, the, when you went on or were yeah. you, did they give you a character name? No, I was Nick Cersei from Justified. Now how that, how that happened? Like how did, <laughs> I've always been a wrestling fan. About two years ago, I went down and I shot some footage with the idea to make a reality show about these uh, independent, the struggling wrestlers. Okay. And there's a pocket of them between Chattanooga and Atlanta, and they're all trying to make it. So I shot down there for about a week, and I did this this gag where I'd get in the ring, and I would, you know, they would introduce me as Nick Cersei from Justified, and I would turn heel on the audience. I would get in the ring and I'd go. You know, I'm uh, I'm bored with acting because I've mastered it, and now I'm going to go into professional wrestling. And they go, "What are you going <laughs> to wrestle?" And I go, "No, I'm going to buy a little wrestling organization. I'm going to turn it into something really special." And they'd go, "Oh my goodness!" The audience would clap. They go, "Are you going to buy this one right here in Dalton, Georgia?" And I would go, "Well, I was Johnny until I met a few of the people here." <laughs> And I've decided they just don't have the intellectual capacity to understand the kind of wrestling I, you know, and so that the audience would start throwing things and stuff. So we did a bunch of that. And then so the action, but you got, you took the Peabody. I mean. Yeah. And then I became friends with Matt Hardy, who used to be one of the Hardy boys in, the, in WWE. And he said, do you want to come to Nashville? Uh, this was last summer and do a pay-per-view with me. And so it's, we'll, a, it's a big, it's a big event. Like 2,000 people there. It was Ring of Honor's first ever pay-per-view. And it was crazy. It was so much fun. We did like three videos on YouTube sort of selling the match up to that where I'm calling out his opponents and saying what filthy rednecks they are and stuff. <laughs> and Matt and I are bragging about how we're both from North Carolina, but we went out and made something of ourselves and became huge international stars. You know, it was so much fun. That's and, funny. And then they, they basically... Uh, Matt tried to hit the guy with my Peabody and it didn't work. And then I climb into the ring to get my Peabody back and they elbow dropped me right in the middle of the ring. Some guy got up on the turnbuckle and dropped an elbow on me and they carried me off in a stretcher. Did it hurt? <laughs> yes. I mean, because it's, oh I don't care what God. they say. They, I know it's daily say, but you're still coming off a high level hitting oh my someone. God. It was amazing. It was like getting hit by a car. I still wake up sometime and my rib hurts. <laughs> <laughs> okay well i want to thank you for coming on i want to uh i want to, I want to okay we want to go to uh your twitter now what is your twitter handle yes nick cersei okay and spell your name because people can't spell because they're from north Carolina. <laughs> i'm sure they know what my name is because they all know what a big star i am steve uh nick cersei n-i-c-k-s-e-a-r-c-y yes nick cersei and you tweet a lot yeah how, how, how often do they do you tweet uh, you know, some days I'll take a few hours off, but <laughs> I also have a staff that tweets for me when I'm busy. So, you know, it's, it's, oh, it's really? yeah, it looks constant, uh, but, uh, yeah, they're a paid staff and they're, they're just as mean and horrible as I am. So, <laughs> And now you have a website. Yeah. Nick 
All right. Well, I want to thank you for coming on. Follow him on Twitter, people. And just Google the article about him. About Just put his uh, Nick Searcy, uh, conservative. And Angriest conservative. And you'll, you'll die. Just read the tweets. And, and if that doesn't entertain you, you have problems. So follow him uh, on Twitter. Follow me at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk on Twitter. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have over 370 episodes up there. You can listen to a bunch of past ones. You know, people from all specters of the entertainment world. Send me an email, cooper at coopertalk.net. I'd love to hear from you guys. Same with iTunes and Stitcher. It's one word, Cooper Talk. And you have to go to my new website. My new website, stopthesalt.com. That's my low-sodium cooking uh, cookbook. You know, when I got out of the hospital, I had to change my diet. So I have 120 recipes, you know, all easy to make. You know, there's not a ton of ingredients. There's no pictures. You won't be intimidated. They take about 20 minutes. They're healthy. There's dinner, there's lunch, there's sides. You got to eat healthy people because, you know, I was I was sick for a while and it's just no fun. It sucks. So you got to eat healthy, be healthy, you have to stay healthy. Go to StopTheSalt.com, buy the cookbook. You can buy it on Amazon, but I make more money if you buy it on my website and I'll autograph it for you. So yeah, so check out check out Nick, his website. Check out me at CooperTalk.net. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins. I'll talk to you next week with a whole bunch of guests and you have guys have a wonderful weekend. It's been taking exactly an hour.